Hello. Hi, and welcome to the Herondales of Poor. <laughs> I'm never gonna get this right. <laughs> Teenage. <laughs> just the about this. Sorry, <laughs> guys. Just about this. I just rehearsed this thing and everything. You did. Welcome like to the three separate times. Oh my gosh. I'm Ginny. I'm Allie. The one who keeps us to get these. I'm Melanie. <laughs> and we're here to help. We're gonna try to help. We always try to help. Whether we're whether whether we're helpful or not, you know. Clearly, Ginny needs help with the intro. Exactly. I, I still need help, obviously. Every week. <laughs> and we're here to support you, Ginny. We literally, you before we went live, had just <laughs> talked about Ginny the last time she did the intro was her redemption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then this time, <laughs> this is up again. <laughs> I was there right, right at the word, too. Herondale. Full and circle. Boy. <laughs> skipped boy. I was Herondale. No boys. Just Herondale. I was like, why? No boys, just Herondale's. <laughs> Hey, we're we're about to get some. Uh, well, we do have some non-boy Herondales that we do we love. Do, so there's that at least. Yeah. I mean, we've had a non-boy Herondale for most for a good chunk of. We this. have, we have. Mm-hmm. Now, if oh, we're, we're being a main cast member, <laughs> woo, non-boy Herondale. But yeah, yeah. What's been going on, but guys? This, that's uh, yeah. How's another another week? How's life? Um, it's, it's, you know, it's going, it's, Allie and I are both less sick than we were last time. <laughs> less sick is, exciting. Is, that is the thing. I, I am not from sick. the COVID, and then I got a nasty sinus infection, like, right after, and it was a bad time, <laughs> so. Yeah, because of the two of them being sick, we have a Dungeons and Dragons game going. Because of the two of them being sick, we haven't played in, what, like, over a month? Yeah. Yeah. That happens sometimes, unfortunately. Yeah. Dungeons and Dragons is so fun, but it's hard there. to get people to consistently together. It's... Yeah. And unfortunately, really, like, as DM, like, I need to be present mentally to do things. And it doesn't happen always. <laughs> Especially when There's it's that. sickly. It's fine. It's fine. I miss it too, honestly. I've been thinking about it a lot lately. Yeah. I miss it. I kind of forgot about it until Melanie mentioned it, but uh, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Ouch! It has been over. It has been many months, and yeah, it's a thing. But it's you know, been like it's, two it makes months. It... it has not been many months. Uh, I haven't forgotten. Anyway, I've it been goes on waiting every month because <laughs> every week I, I bought my dice, and I haven't been oh, able that's to use right. them. You did buy your first you set do of have dice. dice now, Allie. Really? Melanie? I'm blaming you because you're the DM. Ginny can be sick and miss it. You can't. Oh, please. Listen, I have a shitty (laughs) immune system. It's not my fault. My parents did not let me lick enough bumpers as a child. And therefore, I have a terrible, terrible immune system. Honestly, if you're interested in hearing more about Allie as a child, you should come check out. And this is a shameless plug for Usually Triumphant. Because Allie will often have her dad join her for streams. And we get her dad to tell us stories about Allie as a child. That that is a thing I've been known to do is have my father crash my gaming streams. Um, yeah, he likes to tell stories about me as a child, about me being a general little shit. And uh, yeah, there's the time that he tied me to one of those uh play school cars so that I wouldn't run away. And then it's also <laughs> the time. The time. You Go ahead. Beat up a boy. I did beat up a boy. I did tackle him over a water cooler. That is a thing that I did. <clears throat> I was quite the little hellion. Now, the if issue is I was interested. too smart for my own good. And then here we are. 
if anybody is interested, I put the link the to their gaming channel in our chat in uh, Twitch. So fun. Come on by. over there. Yeah, speaking Same of dice, well. I yeah. have um, a dice advent calendar this year for December. And every day it's a different die. And it's so cool. I'm so excited. Like, I got this chonky D20 on the first day. Look at how big it is. This is big and beautiful. And then, like, I got a, I got this cool D4 that is, like, shaped different. And then I got, like, this D6. I got so many cool ones. And then I recently got a wooden, like, Christmas-themed one. And, yeah, I'm having a great time with getting just a different die every day. It is the best. I'm very excited. Roman calendars are really fun, and I like them a lot. Uh... I, it's, I'm I'm proud of Allie for not opening all of them and actually just doing it every like one every day. That is an Allie. So I'm sure that that's difficult. Yes. Yeah, I could see Allie being impatient and opening them all at once. Yeah. We currently so my parents don't live in the same state as I, so they ship Christmas to me and Ginny because Ginny also gets Christmas from Christmas from my parents, <laughs> and they arrive in these big boxes. And usually, in the past, they've sent them, like, two days before Christmas, because I'm notorious for opening boxes. But this year, they're actually sending them early in advance, and it is killing me a little on the inside. So we just have these two boxes of presents just, like, sitting in the front room, and I'm just like... <laughs> do not look. Do not look. Do not I am look. proud of you for waiting. <laughs> There's so many more days, though. 16 more days. That's I mean, not if you're me. That's true. Not if you're <laughs> Melanie. Exactly. How's Hanukkah? We don't have to wait. We haven't done anything for it yet. Oh, okay. Oh, uh, right. we're doing it. We have family coming over tomorrow. Oh, that's fun. So that'll be our big day. Fun. Fun, fun. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, we have a lot of words in the summaries, and we have four so short oh. stories to discuss today. Mm-hmm. So okay. So do we want to like split it up and do a summary before we chat about a thing, or or yeah, because we're, we're not like going to do half, them all back, half back or something. Maybe that'd not. That'd be too much. Yeah, I'd be talking be a lot for so then, much, right? so long. Right. I think that's a good idea. <laughs> but yeah, I will give so you the just... blanket spoiler statement for all of the stories that we're going to talk about. So we're going to be talking about the following stories. We're going to be talking about from the Bane Chronicles, what really happened in Peru, the Runaway Queen, as well as Vampire Scones and Edmund Herondale. We're also going to be talking a little bit about Tales from the Shadowhunter Academy, specifically the Whitechapel Fiend. Again, if you haven't read those, or and you're intending to, and you don't want spoilers, then now is the time to click away. Um, but if you're just listening for vibes, or if you've already read them and want to hear our thoughts, then here we are. So, since we are going chronologically, we're going to start with some that happened before the Infernal Devices even took place. And that is going to begin with what really happened in Peru. The Bane Chronicles is a series of shorts originally published as free ebooks that follow everyone's favorite warlock, Magnus Bane, in interludes from his long and fabulous life. The first of these is what really happened in Peru, promising to uncover the story of Magnus's infamous ban from the country. Really, what we learned is that a lot of things happened in Peru. We see Magnus's Peruvian exploits in a series of vignettes. They begin in 1791 with Magnus, eager to party, awaiting the arrival of notorious grump Ragnar Fell for an experience in debauchery. Women, men, drinks, and inexplicably monkeys rack up quite the bill, so we then take a peek at how Magnus finances his adventures, 
as a warlock for hire. This time, he's been hired to protect a boat full of valuable guano, that is, bat poop, as it crosses the sea. Armed with a jaunty cap and magic that can redirect other ships, Magnus starts his time on the high seas in equally high spirits, while Ragnar is fighting illness. Fully enjoying his stint as a pirate, Magnus is moved across the decks as a pirate might by swinging across a rope and convinces Ragnar to do the same. As Magnus swings, he misses that the hold door is open, and as he and later Ragnar lets go, they drop into an elbow-deep soup of guano. Ragnar's resent resulting tantrum, upon hearing that he is now covered in poop, sinks the ship, though we are assured that this is not the reason Magnus was banned from Peru. In 1885, Magnus is back in Peru. With him are Katarina Loss and Ragnar Fell, who has gone back on his promise to never travel in Peru with Magnus again. They help a client rob a temple before Katarina admits that she was jealous of Magnus' adventures with Ragnar last time, and she wishes to experience a Peruvian party. Still, defacing of a temple is not why Magnus was banned. A few years later, in 1890, the Warlock Trio has taken up residence in Peru. Magnus has decided to learn the Chirango, a small stringed instrument popular in the country. Katarina sees right through this whim and knows that it is undoubtedly tied to a paramour. And while Ragnus resents the assertion, Katarina is correct, and his name is Imasu Morales. Magnus charms the young man into giving him lessons, and the pair grow close. Magnus, however, is not making improvements on his chosen instrument. In the town, through Imasu, begs Magnus to give up his musical endeavors. Magnus is not one to ignore the words of a handsome young man, and promptly throws the trongo out of the window in exchange for a more amorous form of music-making. The warlocks extend their time in the city of Puno to allow for Magnus and his paramour to spend time together. Magnus tells stories, and Imasu devours them, only for it to stop on a dime. One day, his love insists that Magnus and his friends leave the town without him. Magnus is heartbroken and pours his sorrows out to his friends and later drowns them in drink. Following flying carpets, guinea pig liberation, and vomiting on the Nazca lines, the Warlock Trio have a heart-to-heart -heart and discuss the na their natures and their parents. Katarina and Ragnar speak of their parents who love them more than they perhaps should have, given their brightly colored skin and magical otherness. Magnus, however, mourns his own mother, who took her own life upon seeing Magnus's cat eyes. However, drunken vomiting did not get Magnus banned from Peru. <coughs> Excuse me. In 1962, Magnus has his last adventure in Peru. On the street, Magnus spots a wealthy man and a gorgeous woman. Magnus overhears the man's remarks on wishing that the natives were more colorful and is spotted during his retort in Spanish. The man pushes his attractive companion, Kitty, to take a picture with him. Kitty and Magnus converse in Spanish, and Magnus asks her to run away with him. She does. The pair fall in deep yet short love over the resulting summer-long crime spree. While we know that this does not result in Magnus's banning from Peru, we do know that we may never know the actual cause. And scene. And scene. Where do we begin? So we learned about... Yeah, we so the the title is correct. What really happened in Peru, but like that's not the the, the re, like you know, it promises we, we to tell us happened. why he was. But <laughs> it the, yeah. the tagline that you said, Allie, something about promising to we, reveal. Yeah, or we're told we're gonna learn how he's banned from Peru, and then uh -huh. well, the truth we is, don't. Magnus doesn't know why he was banned from Peru. <laughs> I feel lied to. I feel led on. I do feel a little lied to. It, it was a little bait and switch thing happening. I will say that, that was I my did enjoy his adventures in Peru. I thought I, I think Magnus is an interesting character. I enjoy Magnus a lot, and I remember, yeah, 
So of the three of us, I'm the only one who was like following this series kind of as it came out. I joined the Shadowhunter fandom um, Mm -hmm. earlier than all of us. So I remember these coming out. I remember being so excited to hear more about Magnus and to learn more about his story because I thought he was so cool. And like, yeah, I really enjoyed the chance to like get in his head because throughout the Moral Entrance and the Infernal Devices, we don't really get into Magnus's head a lot. You know, the his is a viewpoint we don't always get. And so I was intrigued to hear more about him. And yeah, I know that neither of you were particularly enthused by these shorts, but in particular, I have a soft spot for them. And particularly this one with all of his misadventures. I also love Magnus. Don't get me wrong. But I was just... It was not something I really enjoyed. I was, like, not impressed. I don't know. Just something about it. I was honestly more interested in... I would honestly be more interested in... I, what did I say exactly? Um, There's something about Katarina. Hold on. Katarina's cool. Oh, yeah. See, I said she's such a mom friend, like Charlotte, which, yes. Mm-hmm. But what I really was going to say was that I'm more interested in learning about Katarina's past. Because they mentioned that she was almost burned for being mm-hmm. thought a witch. And I'm like, that sounds more interesting than Manigan, Magnus shenanigans in Peru. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think it's also interesting within this trio, because Magnus is the baby of the trio. Too. So, like, yeah, Katarina and Ragnar have these uh, experiences and, like, this this insight that Magnus doesn't have in a lot of cases. And Magnus, especially at these little shorts, especially these first couple ones where they're really just his drunken shenanigans and causing problems, like, he feels young still, like, despite Absolutely. being I mean, however old he says he is. And I was going to say, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know. He, keep, he keeps <laughs> changing and saying a different age on how old he is, which is funny. Yeah. But it gives that impression of he's still young uh, compared to, like, yeah, Ragnar and Katarina, who have been around a minute. And we see that kind like, of in the way that they react to um, that third little vignette um, where he's fallen in love with the boy, with the yeah. uh, musician. You know, I don't remember if it was in this one or Runaway Queen, but Magnus, he sort of alludes to like when he stopped aging and growing. You know what I'm saying? Yes, like he, I don't he, remember when exactly that happened either. Me either. It's in one of the stories, but it's relevant in the fact that, like, to me, I don't know, I don't know if it's meant to be this way. It sounds sort of fresh in the way he's thinking about it. And it could be that it's a couple hundred years. It could not be. Yeah, we're you definitely getting the sense that time moves different for Magnus, obviously. And he tries it to make light of does. it in how he jokes about his age all the time. But, like, what I get, particularly in these short stories, particularly this one and the next one, is that Magnus is lonely. Like, he is just so lonely. Um, I think he references having had a love, but, like, he's looking for a partner. He's looking for someone, you know, to be with. And he's being shunned for his uh, otherness in so many ways. And, you know, yeah. he's coping with it badly. That's what we're seeing happen, is Magnus is coping with immortality, and he's coping with it really poorly. He's coping with it through debauchery and drinks and 
you know. And it's amusing, but it's also like there's an undertone of sadness there. <laughs> I will say, biasly, my favorite part of um what really happened in Peru was the uh magic flying carpet because it you could say it was a whole new world. But um You could. Woo. If you didn't think that was where my mind immediately went to, then you don't know me. Ginny was reading these last night, and then Ginny turns to me and she says, this makes me really glad you don't have magic powers. <laughs> That's true. Oh, God. I can only imagine. Yeah. But yeah. What really I feel happened sorry. on that cruise ship? I don't, I don't remember having it. But... Oh, God. Really Callie remembers less ship. than me. What really happened Imagine when we eventually... What really happened in New Orleans? <laughs> yeah. We planned to go on vacation together, a group of us, on a cruise. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I can only imagine what will happen then. Shenanigans. It wasn't terrible, but it's it's shenanigans indeed. So yeah, I I I get a little wandery. Mm-hmm. It's a thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, like that's the other thing is like uh to me it's like so Magnus is like sad, you know, and he's doing these things because he's sad and he doesn't know how to deal with it and not deal with immortality. But it's also there's like you know, and and being younger too, there's like a there's like a an immaturity to it too of like he hasn't like you know Mm -hmm. he hasn't figured it out and so he's just like he's just screwing around because like he has all the time in the world so it's like so what's the harm you know Mm -hmm. so my is what what consequence is this real action really gonna have you know we're gonna see i think that shows itself a lot more in like the next one we're gonna talk about but i feel like both of these yeah there's some level of my consequences don't have actions my consequences don't have actions i think that's (laughs) one important thing we learn about I don't want to say young Magnus because, like, I don't know how else to describe it. Right. This is young Rather Magnus. Than, like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. That, that he, he's still learning. He's still, like, a, almost like a giddy schoolboy in that, like, his actions don't have consequences. But then the other side of that is that he's lonely and he doesn't deal with heartbreak well. He doesn't. Which, and, no. Yeah. No. Is, you know, it, I don't want to say humanizes him because, like, he's not a monster. He's just not a human. It puts him in yeah. a different perspective because we think of warlocks as these like long lived beings. Um mm-hmm. and so like surely they have to be like so wise and have all this insight, but like no, their scale of maturity is different. You know? And they're trying to figure it out. And there's nobody else to help them figure it out except other warlocks, like how to do this immortality thing, you know? Like Right. Yeah. And what Magnus I like about just... this one particular is how we get to see that relationship play out between Ragnar, mm-hmm. Katarina, and Magnus just kind of like um, Ragnar and Katarina kind of helping Magnus figure it out. Like, they see him fall yeah. for this boy, and Magnus is like, I need to stay because I love him, and Ragnar and Katarina kind of do the if you insist, and, like, you know, letting him have these experiences, letting him kind of grow on his own. But... As much as they know it's probably not going to end well, they know he needs to have the experience. Exactly, and they're there yeah. to, you know, hold him through his heartbreak, and babysit him through his shenanigans, and, you know, make sure he doesn't liberate too many guinea pigs, and <laughs> as it were yeah. exactly prevent him from turning into a cactus that too oh my gosh yeah <laughs> Katarina there wasn't, just retelling all that. these things and Max was just like oh uh-huh uh-huh <laughs> yeah. yeah after that night on the cruise ship uh-huh exactly <laughs> and, it, and they were beautiful and then you threw up all over all of those <laughs> Magnus like, oh. Allie I see no difference yeah. <laughs> I aspire to be Magnus. 
yeah. Yeah. I don't I was have like, much man, more to say about it. Ragnar is long suffering. He is. In real. this. Like and we we don't and I don't know if he appears in any of the other uh stories, but you know, he's gonna be in last hours. And I don't mm-hmm. remember being like, Oh, Ragnar's so cool or whatever, but when you read this, I was like, damn, poor Ragnar fell too. <laughs> Which like Ragnar is like ends up being ends up having to be the Magnus Bane to some extent in mm-hmm. I mentioned the last hours, but <laughs> I mentioned Katarina being like the mom. Ragnar is like the annoyed older brother. Oh yeah. Oh, and Magnus course. is yeah. younger brother who oh, yeah. just wants to have fun. Magnus is just down for a good party. But again, it's it's hiding these very real, like, deep yeah. feelings of loneliness. And... It's a coping mechanism. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's and it's hard because there's that there's that one line later where like where his paramour tells tells him to leave because oh, yeah. he seems impermanent. And then Magnus is just like, excuse me, <laughs> bitch. <laughs> If you only I'm the most permanent thing, yeah, <laughs> exist here. But okay, yeah, pop off, I guess. Uh, exactly. I but there is this. But I mean, but we've seen through the story that, like, from a human perspective, not knowing that you know that this person is immortal, like, you know, he does. You know, Magnus does have a wall up. Basically, there is a oh, yeah. separation happening that to. I think to an insightful human, like to be able to say that, like it's not false of another you like if you know if, if Magnus was another human, mm-hmm. that would that it could seem like he's just going through life, like doing these things and not looking to stay one way or another. Like that impression makes sense. But the irony is heartbreaking for Magnus. Magnus is presenting himself as a ma- manic pixie dream boy. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And like when you think about the stories that he's telling his paramour, he's you know, and he mentions in that line where he's talking about being the most permanent thing, um, you know, following uh, Amasu's comment on him being um, unpermanent and constantly changing. Um, Magnus mentions that, like, that's the most true thing he ever told him, you know, because he's telling yeah. like these half stories, which are all very unbelievable, of course, to a mortal, mortal guys, especially when you're hiding the magic behind it, you know? And yeah, so he's definitely, he's putting on this front and putting on this bravado and this very, it's, it's very much a thing of youth to, well, I did this and kind of like puff yourself up and be someone else and be really ingenuine. And yeah, it speaks to a lot of insecurity and loneliness. (laughs) Um, I didn't have really anything else to say about this one. So yeah, I guess building on Magnus is lonely. And <laughs> do, do my actions have consequences? Let's go ahead and talk about the runaway queen. Oh boy. Oh, the runaway queen. The year is 1791 in Paris. is at the height of fashion and the nadir of hygiene. The country is embroiled in revolution. And Magnus is trying to find his own among the chaos. The wealthy were still his best clients, after all. He's left his home on this day in search of a balloon. Flying in balloons was a decade-old trend that a lot of wine had made Magnus particularly keen to try. Unfortunately, fate decided against his flight, with a storm canceling his adventure. He tries to turn this outing around with a stroll in the park, eyes peeled for handsome and love-struck persons, but comes up short. Instead, he finds Henri, a darkling in service of the Parisian vampire lord St. Cloud. 
who greets Magnus with an invitation to a party. An invitation he is reluctant to, but must ultimately accept if he wishes to continue his residence in Paris. Back in his home, Magnus bathes, but his self-care is interrupted by the next handsome man to get him into trouble, Count Axel. Axel wants Magnus to save the queen, glamour her to ensure she is protected as the royals move to escape the city and flee the revolutionaries. While Magnus deals with the French revolutionaries, he recognizes the fear and disconnect of the royals as well. And, of course, there is an attractive man begging his assistance. Magnus agrees. The morning of the planned escape, Magnus awakes, hungover, and with a monkey in his room. One he promptly names Ragnar, after his dear old friend. A letter arrives explaining that the escape plan is to be delayed to tomorrow, the same day as St. Cloud's party. A love-struck Magnus knows it will be busy, but knows that Axel's affections are more than worth it. Magnus arrives at the palace and does his duty to glamour the queen before going to St. Cloud's party. One obligatory and confusing incest subplot later, Magnus is surprised when none other than Queen Marie Antoinette appears at the party. She had taken a wrong turn, and vampires, able to see through her glamour, swept her up as a particularly delightful snack. Magnus's brain shoots into hyperdrive. He convinces St. Cloud that this is not in fact the queen, but is instead an elaborate copy made for deviant purposes, her client of Magnus. St. Cloud is undeterred and wants her, promising to pay double that of Magnus's client. Magnus insists that he is not finished and tries to leave, but St. Cloud offers Magnus room to finish his business in instead. The only way out is through the window, and of course it would be too easy if they were on the first story. With his quick thinking, Magnus steals a balloon from across the city, renders it invisible, and delivers the queen to Axel for her escape. Axel shows his gratitude with a kiss, and St. Cloud shows his by murdering Magnus's housekeepers, Marie and Claude, and threatening to do the same to the handsome young man Magnus holds affections for. Magnus takes Ragnar and his jewels and vows to leave Paris. Later in the Alps, Magnus hears of the capture of the king and queen and fears for Axel. He writes him a letter and gets a response from the man's sister, begging that Magnus convince Axel to step out of French politics. Magnus knows that he will not and responds only by setting the message aflame. Uh, I'm burning the letters! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, <laughs> quite literally. <laughs> I'm burning the yep. letters you sent me. Yep. Uh, but yeah, that that that's definitely one where it was like a oh, do my actions have consequences? And like, <laughs> you. I just, I don't. This one I enjoyed even less because I was just like, well, we all know how this is going to end. Yeah, I will say this one was not my favorite. Not Milo's either. Just yeah, that, of the uh... four, this one was the, the low point for <laughs> it's me. It's like, she oh, can't rewrite that. history, Cassie Clare, so clearly the king and queen aren't going to make it <laughs> exactly. one way or another. So I think that's an interesting take on... I think that relates interestingly to Magnus's idea of his actions and consequences. Because we know, obviously, that even though he's doing this, he can't win. You know, he's not big enough to change uh, turn the tides of fate, so to speak, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think towards the end, what we see in Magnus setting those letters aflame is that he's kind of having this realization where he's realizing that maybe he needs to just stay out of it when it comes to these big, mater- big matters, I think. Part of this maybe. that I enjoyed the most. Part of it, yeah. Part of the story that I enjoyed the most was calling the monkey Ragnar. Oh yeah, absolutely. That was the best part. Hands down. Because oh, yeah. 
it ties back into what really happened in Peru with Ragnar not being a fan of the monkeys and yeah. And then yep. Magnus is like, Claude, will you get him a waistcoat <laughs> and jacket? Oh my gosh. That matches and, why. Yeah. And, oh, like a like, leash too. Like jaunty cap. But yeah. <laughs> jaunty cap. F in the chat jaunty for Claude cap. and what is it, Maria? Claude Maria. Yeah. yeah. Marie. F in the bad. chat. Yeah, so. that's the other thing is like, yeah, Magnus has these like these uh servants and like housekeepers that like help him and stuff and they're really good to him and you know, blah blah blah. But then they just yeah, He's they get building killed these relationships because... that only fail. You yeah. know, or building these relationships that only hurt people. Yeah. And speaking of relationships, Magnus consistently has a type. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. That, that black hair and blue eye combination. Blue eyes. Mm. This does something <laughs> to him. Anytime, anytime, some, somebody walks across his path, he's just like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm doing. Yeah, whatever. The irony that Magnus the cockblock thing is out here. Needs to be cockblocked. <laughs> somebody cockblocked. Random fools with black hair and blue eyes just doing whatever. And then Let's... Magnus is just like, ah, yes. I, too, can be rendered stupid by a type. But Magnus. Magnus, my man. My dude. Magnus, please. You have to learn to put yourself first. It's okay, buddy. It's okay <laughs> to love yourself. Um, I will say well, I particularly least... enjoyed Magnus being... Magnus settling into the bath, like, getting all ready just to relax after his thing, and then Claude arriving like, uh, you have a visitor? You have a visitor. <laughs> yeah, Magnus Claude's like, like, will the master oh. be receiving this visitor in the bath? And Magnus is like, I might. <laughs> Consider yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he does receive him in this silk peacock robe, though. So, I mean, I'm sure that's also quite the first impression. Yeah. And that's, um. the, that's the other thing in this. is It's interesting because, you know... This is set during the French Revolution, where a lot of attention was being drawn to the, like the gap between the gap, the wealth gap was massive. Mm -hmm. um, it was like you know the big part of this, and Magnus is living living it up. He's living in, uh, you know, he's his clients are the wealthy people, and like he's benefiting from it. And he's somebody of fashion. He's somebody who likes elegance and extravagance to to accept especially with his jaunty caps and you know those sorts of things and and there's there's a you know there's a moral gray area of that and which i definitely think that he feels you know he he he, don't, he notices the disparities and doesn't really know what to like do do about it again he doesn't get involved until somebody's like i need to hire you and then ends up just like you know leaving paris altogether mm -hmm. at the end because of the, his own issues with the vampires but would There's you say a... that Magnus is living it up on top? Yeah. Close to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. References all around. I don't stop. We know. Yeah. It's an interesting perspective on the whole French Revolution thing. For Magnus I to feel quickly... like in the middle. And he mentions that he's not like a French countryman. And so he begins this very like, it's none of my business. Yes. And then obviously, hot young man, Magnus is like, huh? Of course I'll interfere with the French Revolution for you. I want to make if that give happen. me a smooch. I want to tap yeah, that ass. Give me again. <laughs> um, I do want to quickly mention something you 
brought up in your summary because I did not see it that way or pick up on it was the the maybe disturbing incest plot ah yes (laughs) (laughs) I texted Ginny what was the exact quote because I was reading these I think it's like I have found the yeah I have found the hold on I'm scrolling so I can find it I found the inexplicable incest subplot. Yep. (laughs) Oh, guys. And I was like, no. And I was like, I didn't pick up on it that way, but now that you say it. (laughs) Jenny was briefly concerned about the situation at my work, at my place of employment. (laughs) I was like, Uh... that. But I was like, right, you're reading the story at this point. Yeah. This is not a real life situation. Exactly. Jenny was like, "Uh," nothing, no, no, no. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. more magnificent. Yeah, there's like oh, one oh line in there, and I was just like, "It's yeah, it's the vampire darkling, uh, Henri, yeah, and then his is. sister." <laughs> uh-huh. Just like a little, a little not sibling, and I was just like, <laughs> "I see it." <laughs> I was like, "Cassie Claire, why?" <laughs> Why? I, why? Yeah. It's please. like because this came out. This came out after Mortal Instruments, right? After Mortal Instruments and after Lean for All the Vases. So, like, she had already okay. done the sort of incest plot once before. Why did she need to repeat it? There, there's a questionable incest plot, you know? plot in all of them. <laughs> you know, what's yeah. the incest plot in uh, Tia in the front of the races? There's got to be one. There's, there's got to be one. <laughs> there's got to be one. <laughs> I'll get back to you next week. <laughs> okay. That is the hallmark of writing <laughs> for Cassie Claire. Questionable incest subplot. Oh, oh, it's it's Mort Vane and Tessa's kids, eventual kids. <laughs> oh, like, that's know, right. It would have to be the the. the oh, okay, but like that's not. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, it's, yeah, it's not happening. like the, but but it's there. <laughs> but like the implications, but like I guess it's not. Yeah, it's not I between guess. characters. I I see what you're saying, but oh, okay. <laughs> we we could find one, but uh, yeah, when but Will's calling Cecily, it's Cecily Tessa thinks that it's a lover. He does. That is also that's, a questionable incest subplot for the purposes of the video. That's being stupid. That's not. <laughs> ac- Whatever. I'm not going to argue this because it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, anyways, yeah. Let's move fun. on. Speaking of the Herondales, I suppose. Herondales! Herondales. The best. What we're all here for. Yes. Gotta meet yeah. OG Daddy Herondale. Here we go. London, 1857. Magnus has harbored a resentment for vampires since the unfortunate incident in Paris. But all of that is rendered moot by one Lady Camille Belcour's powerful bosom. Of course, her stunning bosom is not what he should be focusing on now. As he is meeting with Shadowhunters over a new set of laws for downworlders and Nephilim alike. The Accords. The downworlders present. Magnus and Camille, as well as the Mermaid Arabella, Werewolf Ralph Scott, and Alexei de Quincy are being shouted over as the Shadowhunters argue amongst themselves. Tension brews as Ralph tries to champion for the rights of downworlders in these new laws, and scones are offered to cut the tension. <clears throat> of course, in true Herondale form, this is when a young man with golden hair and eyes as blue as the sky appears. Edmund Herondale. One Herondale interruption and baby Charlotte cameo later, the meeting continues to no true progress. Magnus begins a walk to see Camille when an attractive and interesting person falls from the sky. 
Much to Magnus's dismay, a devastating ensemble made on Bond Street with a red brocade waistcoat does not follow. Edmund, the attractive and interesting person, sought out Magnus for the pr promise of adventure, which Magnus provides. The pair go to White's Club for drink and cards. Edmund is fascinated by the games and the risk of gambling, of gambling, living for the danger and thrill. What better life for someone who has denounced love? Eventually, it is Magnus who pulls Edmund away from the tables and into the London streets for a sobering walk in the chilled night air. Magnus attempts to enchant the young shadow hunter with stories, but is interrupted by the presence of a demon. Edmund slays the demon, saving a midnight-haired beauty in the process. Lynette Owens is a Welsh heiress with a quick wit and sharp tongue. Edmund is stunned and instantly smitten, and leaves the encounter with an invitation to call upon her when he's sober. Though, to be fair, Magnus receives the same invitation. Another meeting with the Shadowhunters is going just as well as first, with Ralph presenting a compiled list of downrolled demands that succeeds in only angering the Shadowhunters. When it looks like things are soon to be thrown, Magnus excuses himself and finds Edmund looking forlorn. He holds in his hands a pixis, containing the first demon he ever slew. Edmund knew being a Shadowhunter was in his blood, but so deep was his love too for Lynette. He could not ask her to give up her world in exchange for his own, nor could he live without her by his side. In that moment, he makes a decision. And Magnus worries just a touch for the young Shadowhunter's future. Edmund does not look back. Magnus returns to the meeting, only for it to be interrupted by demons. Clearly, to Shadowhunter eyes, anyway, these demons were summoned by, summoned by the Downworlders. Tired of the prejudice and seeing that the eventual accords will not be in the interest of Downworlders at all, Ralph Scott leaves, making eyes at Camille on the way. Magnus and Camille, as reasonable Downworlders, are invited to the Institute for another meeting, and Magnus hears screams as he approaches. Edmund Herondale is being stripped of his marks. Struck by their barbarity, he and Camille turn to leave. They speak of their romance and of Ralph Scott, and Magnus departs London. For a time, anyway. Um, I guess I'll start and say I enjoyed this story much more than the other two. I agree. I like this one. Yeah. <clears throat> I think and the way it's it, told it directly is ties into the stuff. Yeah. It directly ties into the stuff we just read, too. So there's. Yeah, throughout mm -hmm. the important devices we talk about, or we. It's talked about, I guess, Magnus having this connection to Will's father. Mm -hmm. And now we know what that is. We do know what that is. And I remember when we were discussing the Infernal Devices, uh, Melanie, you made a comment about um, Edmund being drawn to gambling and like whether or not that was a thing that he did or a thing that Mortmain pushed. Oh, you're and right, I did. We, and here we oh, kind of yeah. see that it, it's his own natural inclinations, you know? He's a risk taker. He's, you know, into... That's what he loved about shadow hunting is that, you know, getting his blood pumping. And then he found that same sort of motivation in his family and in his love. But when that started to fall apart, he was he seeking... He turned to gambling, yeah. Exactly. He was seeking that thrill, that life's purpose elsewhere. I forgot I mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot too, but yeah, you're right. So yeah. In interesting points to me back. And then there's this point at the end too where like Magnus like has this moment where he's looking at and he's worrying about Evan's future because like he like sees that. It's good, you mm, know, he does type of thing, and I was like, ugh, yeah, yeah. Um, we meet Ralph, who is Wolsey's younger brother, or older brother. Sorry. Older brother, yeah. Wolsey's older, older, brother. older brother. Um, yes. We get a lot of honestly, we get a lot of characters who are really only mentioned by name or get brief appearances in in front of devices. Mm -hmm. Um. Yep. 
Well, we know that Ralph Scott is important because he's Camille's lover that yeah. De Quincey mm-hmm. had slaughtered. And yep. that's what turned Camille against him. And I, there was a line in here about Camille saying that um, De Quincey was a leader and friend. And I was like, that's not going to last long. <laughs> not for long. <laughs> he's not a friend. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a couple more, like, 20 years, but no, not much longer. Yeah, no. Um, we also hear about Eggs Benedict. Did you hear about Eggs Benedict? Oh, Lightworm. Uh, yeah, Lightworm and just, ugh. <laughs> so everyone, yeah. yeah, it's an open secret, and everyone knows that, you know, Benedict is out here fucking demons, like, and no one did anything about it. <laughs> I, I, I just, know, that's insane. Just <laughs> Poor Barbara Lightwood. <laughs> it's implied that she had a thing with uh, Edmund, too. You know, oh, and it was implied that she had a thing with somebody, but I didn't know if it was Edmund. It was Edmund. He talks about breaking uh, mm. the, the line specifically. Is, is uh, he says something about her being eager, like to recover her broken heart, and was just like was looking to like get married as soon as possible, basically after her recent heartbreak. And Magnus is like, "You wouldn't know anything about that, would you?" And then Edmund's like, "Meh." They're like, "Uh, something on a on a mantle." It's easy to just, like, knock them over and break them in. As much as somebody not doing something to stop Benedict is, like, super dumb, we wouldn't have Gideon and Gabriel that way. So are you ready for my unhinged conspiracy theory? Oh, no. What if Gideon is Edmunds? Oh. (laughs) I mean, it's unhinged unhinged conspiracy theory. Unhinged conspiracy theory. Because Gabriel and Gideon don't look, I, they look different. They're colored. Yeah, they different. don't. Yeah, I. Uh, and we're getting this take where Barbara is just like rushing into a marriage. You know, all speedy like, and what do you do back in the mm-hmm. day when you've been fooling around, fucking around, and you found out, and the boy is not <laughs> finding out with you, you get married real fast. So listen, there there is nothing to confirm or deny my suspicious, like I said, unhinged conspiracy theory. I'm just putting it out there. What if? Yeah, I mean, I, I I could I could see it, or I mean, I'm not yes or no in it, you know. I think I'm the same. I'm like I see it, but I'm also just like this could just be an alley conspiracy theory. What she does best. It could be, but listen, this isn't like I said, unhinged conspiracy theory that I am hanging my hat on. That is what I'm doing. At the very least, if that were the case, at least he was with Sophie and not Cecily, because that would just be. But no you know, it's Cassie Claire, so he could have easily been with Cecily. <laughs> <laughs> then you really would have your incest plot. I would. Uh, yeah. Why do yeah. I talk to you? <laughs> I didn't write the book, so are you looking at me? I didn't write because the you're you. Plot. Um, I like that, Ralph is so headstrong and like so like so these laws are only for you you want us to make peace with you yet you're gonna just protect yourselves and we get nothing ralph's a good dude mm-hmm. he yeah he sees exactly what's going on and then he's like fuck you and leaves and i'm like yeah and he's respect. eyeing up camille <laughs> mm-hmm. so this is something I don't know if this is me having a conspiracy theory or me just associating it. 
I wonder. I mean, we don't know a lot of what Jace's parents look like. But I wonder if somehow Jace gets his gold hair, blonde hair from Edmund. Oh, absolutely. It would be like kind of impossible because it's centuries old. Yeah, it's true. not that but many generations when you actually think about it's generations. The... That's the seeds that's being that's the seed that's being planted is Edmund is the blonde hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we like, do know honestly, to be, you know, dark hair, blue eyes. Edmund and Jace are like almost the same person. Edmund uh I wrote this. I was like, is Edmund just a previous version of Jace? He lost his parents at a young age and is taken in by another family. It's true, he is raised by the parachild. I was reading about Edmund, I mean, and yeah, I was like, like, this is giving Jace vibes. And then I turned around and oh, read yeah. about Jace, and I was just like, ah, oh, yes, they're the same. <laughs> exactly. It, it just, it comes around, you know? It's, it's... <laughs> it does. That that Herondale boy genes be <laughs> strong. <laughs> Did we ever learn um, Will and Cecily's mother's name in TID? No. Because I was like, oh, is Lynette, like, sure their mother? That. And I had to look it up, because I was like, I don't think we ever learned what her name was. Yes. Lynette and I could have just, okay. I could have just waited and, you know, read on. But. And yeah. Owen is Will's middle name. Oh, okay, is after, it? Okay. Yeah. After Lynette's last right. name. Little Charlotte. Let's talk. Yeah, a, there, Charlotte. She didn't appear for very long, but let's talk about Little Charlotte. Do your duty. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. She's such a cute <laughs> good little girl. We love Charlotte. It's interesting that, okay. you know, Edmund and Charlotte were raised as, si- as siblings. You know? Oh yeah. With that insight. Yeah. I wish we would have gotten more Charlotte reflecting on Will re his parents. Mm-hmm. Especially now knowing that they were raised that way. Because like she must have like some memories of him. Like obviously she's very mm-hmm. small when she does him. We know that Edmund leaves not long after this, but like she knew him. She must have, like, some impression memories. And, like, that might be why she's sort of so... I don't know if it's eager or desperate or what the word is for it, but I think you guys know what I mean. Like, to protect Will. Is it... it because, yeah, like, there's, there's maybe a, it's a almost connection like that's... Yeah. Her nephew? Yeah, and, like, I wish we'd heard more about it, too, because we know that both of Will's parents showed up at the Institute doorstep. Begging. You know, I want, yeah, and I you want would to think see if they were raised, appealing to Charlotte. I mean, that's to what be I want. fair, that's to, my wish list. Like, to be fair to Charlotte, though, like, Charlotte is a little, little, if Charlotte's, like, basically a toddler, I feel like, in this, mm-hmm. right? And, yeah, Edmund's going off and getting married. So like, was the did they really spend that much time together? That at least Charlotte would remember, right? Fair enough. Like she may know saying, that. I, I want to see it. I want that scene. I want oh, that scene. I right, I think it's really interesting. But like, she may know that Edmund was sort of raised by her parents before she was born, mm-hmm. but she may not remember a lot of him. And like, obviously, from a meta perspective, like Edmund was not a character in the Shadowhunters pantheon that mm-hmm. Cassie Clare was likely thinking about as she was writing the Infernal Devices. Right. So that's why it doesn't exist. But but I, I would I would love to see that scene. I would love to see Edmund and Charlotte interacting just for And that. then something else that I found interesting about this is that it's 
basically heavily implied slash confirmed that the Seelie Queen is the one who planted that demon that everybody is fighting toward the end. Ooh, I missed that. So Magnus... Oh, yeah. Make, I, I, I remember mentioned that, that the Seelie yeah. Queen refused to come. The Seelies are unrepresented. That, yeah. But the Queen was oddly very interested in the time, the date, and the place that the meeting was happening. <laughs> yes. So, you know how Seelies like to cause trouble. The Seelies suck, man. Especially that Seelie <laughs> Queen. She's, uh... She's terrible. We'll get to her in Mortal Instruments, but she, uh... She likes to shake things up, so we'll say. We will get plenty of fairy shenanigans in later books. But... I mean, I can only speak for Mortal Instruments because I haven't read, but... There'll be yeah, more I fairy shenanigans no, I, I, I in Dark Arthas. I was like, huh, okay, and then, like, <laughs> moved on, but... <laughs> I just thought that was interesting that it's, like, Magnus basically... He can't confirm anything, but, like, it's all but yeah. confirmed. Yeah, there that yeah, the, the suspicion is is definitely there. And it's interesting because we're seeing as we, we heard about in the in Pro Devices how like the accords are new. Uh like mm -hmm. they they did come to some agreement or I guess some non-agreement or you know, whatever that the in court the courts are in place. But you know, taking a step back, we're seeing the how they got to be where they are and like yeah we see like Starkweather is there in these in this too and he's all crabby about it and you know which is a thing that is consistent with his character as and an we see older that the Downworlders like the Shadowhunters like well this represents the Downworlders too but we're seeing how they're being treated in these meetings mm -hmm. and you know mm -hmm. they're cutting people out step by step and like ultimately they're only meeting with Magnus and Camille because they're the quote reasonable ones you know they've been deemed the good ones if we're kind of because obviously like there's racism allegories happening with the mm -hmm. downworlders and the shadow hunters so we're going with like that uh you know the good ones is what they've been mm -hmm. deemed and that whole problematic mess all we can say is that it will be a long time before they're not going to be equal but they'll at least be more respected i guess yeah and it, and it was interesting seeing um, Camille and Magnus's mm -hmm. kind of how their thing like, started. They're both just then, like, yeah, the, yeah, need to go to horny jail for each other. <laughs> but Camille chooses <laughs> Ralph, and Magnus is like, well, he's a boy. Go live that life with him, and you know, I'll still be here. Which is really interesting because Which is really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> oh, if you want to talk about it, go ahead, Jenny. No, go go ahead. I forget how much time has passed in between, like, the Runaway Queen and now this. But that's very mature for Magnus. Mm -hmm. To be like, well, we have forever and he does not live, he's, no, he's not immortal and we are. So, you can go be with him and I'll be waiting. Yeah, I don't remember how much time either, but there's, there's definitely 60 a, a shift some odd in, years. Like, I mean, that's a decent yeah. amount of time for him to mature, so. Yeah, he's yeah, trying to grow there, up slowly, there, but time surely. has passed, and there is a, yeah, there is a slight more, he's let, you know, this is not a story about Magnus being reckless and stupid and whatever, like the other Chronicles right. were. This is This is more about world building sure. than Magnus. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like, no, and yeah, it's so interesting because Magnus sees the parallels between Edmund, Herondale, and Ralph um, Scott. Yeah. Seeing the the headstrong, the 
you know, mm-hmm. the passion, like all of that. And then, yeah. So he, he definitely, like, he draws the comparisons and then, you know, and like Camille and Magnus come to that agreement of she's going to go be with him because, you know, but like there's definitely, you know, she's definitely interested in Magnus or whatever. And then, and she like has kind of like passing interest in Ralph, but hasn't like pursued really anything either there. Um, and then Magnus is just like, yeah, go, go be with him. And she's like, really? You're cool with that? Like, that sounds weird and different. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, just be, I'll be here. And then, you know, we know how it plays out in the Infernal Devices. He, you know, Ralph gets killed and then... But it's interesting because, like, the way that I feel like Camille's approaching this at this time is, like, you know, they're approaching it like, oh, okay, well, Ralph's going to be a passing thing for a while and it's going to be fun and you're going to have a, a little bit of time over there and then we're just gonna get together after this mm-hmm. um and then he gives her the necklace um, he does no i missed yes. that part he gives, I missed the that part. he gives her the necklace which later becomes will's which later becomes cecily's which later becomes isabel's yeah somewhere in between it becomes somebody's but i know it eventually becomes isabel's it becomes anna's before that yeah yeah but yeah i get the necklace um all the pieces coming uh, Yeah, all the pieces coming together. Oh, coming again. Speaking of pieces coming together, let's meet some of our cast for the last hours. Small <laughs> little, little babies. Small little children. Little babies. Um, the Whitechapel Fiend. Tales from the Shadowhunter Academy is a series of stories within stories, following a Shadowhunter ascendant hopeful as he learns to be a Shadowhunter and about their histories. For the purposes of this podcast and for the timeline... Since we are reading everything chronologically, we're be speaking strictly about the story within the story, and maybe we'll discuss the sort of external narrative later on in the timeline when it makes sense to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, the White Chapel Fiend takes us back to London following the events of the Infernal Devices. Will and Tessa are married and heads of the London Institute. Their family has grown by two, with their two-year-old son James and their newborn daughter Lucy. Gabriel and Cecily are also married, with a slightly older daughter named Anna. Will and Tessa are watching their son steadily hold a dagger, wielding it steadfastly against a villainous duck. Will is thrilled by what a natural his son is, while Tessa quickly replaces the weapon with James's favorite toy, a wooden spoon. Tessa reflects on the almost normalcy of it all when Gabriel Lightwood arrives, distressed by the news in the mundane paper. Jack the Ripper was terrorizing Whitechapel. While the mundanes had their own explanations and theories, something about it seemed particularly demonic to the London Shadowhunters. Together, they form a plan. Cecily will glamour and Tessa will shapeshift to resemble the prostitutes being targeted as they attempt to lure the demon out of hiding. Jem, I mean, Uncle Jem, I mean, Brother Zachariah will also be present for reasons. Their patrols turn up nothing for a month until a murder appears in the mundane paper on a different street. The four set out to investigate the scene. In order to get in, they knock out the detective and Tessa shifts into him, entering the crime scene to be briefed by the doctor. The experience leaves Tessa horrified, but with no real clues. After waking up the detective and returning to herself, they decide to shift their investigation from the crimes themselves to the people targeted. Upon their return, the Institute is suspiciously quiet. Neither Bridget nor the children can be heard. Bridget is found unconscious at the stairs, but the children are still missing. Panic rises as the realization settles in that the demon is somehow inside the Institute. It calls the Shadowhunters, a trickster begging to play a game. James appears, wielding his spoon, and runs straight into a roaring fireplace to disappear in an instant. Just as suddenly, Jemariah appears, assuring a morning Tessa that it was not, in fact, James, 
but the demon itself playing a trick. He also informs her that he knows this because he has a deus ex machina, I mean, tracking spell on both James and Lucy since they were born. Together, they piece together the demon as a child in search of a mother to play with. Jessamine, now a ghost, appears, offering to play with the demon. She offers her dollhouse, but only on the condition that they get more people, the children, to play. The children are found safe in the chimneys. With the children safe, Jessamine proposes a game of hide-and-seek. When the demon appears in the form of a small girl, Will ends them with a quick stab of a seraph blade. Yay. Dab. I have Dab thoughts, Dab but Dab I've been going first if you if you guys either of you wants to go first this time. Oh, Spoon. <laughs> Spoon is also That's my all I have to offer. <laughs> all it's I not like the name of the podcast sun. title or anything. Ba- baby Jamie enters oh. the scene and I'm just like, look at that baby. Look at it. <laughs> I just want to squeeze. <laughs> uh, uh. And you know he's right, got that little tummy because his little toddler tummy just tickle tickle and just like baby. They talk about his round little face and everything. Mm-hmm. And the golden eyes and his yeah. jet black hair. Which, like, the golden eyes confuses me, but that's... Mm. It will be explained in the last hours. Indeed. That, that Herondale special juice, as it were. Oh, yeah. Because I... Apparently it's not, but I thought it was because of Chase stuff that I don't want to say because we're not there yet. It's because of Tessa stuff. Wow. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> Interesting. Um, should I go, or go do ahead. you guys have more to say? I have mixed feelings about this story. On the one hand, seeing Tessa and Will and Cecily and Gabriel and little family unit, super, super cute. Mm-hmm. Love it. Love Spoon. Love the James is just a menace because he's a toddler. Listen, I'm living for Will's Dilfera. That's fantastic. I am so ready for more. Sorry, I <laughs> thought I saw something flying around. Um, I don't know how I feel. I like, I'm like uneasy about Cassie Claire basically saying that Jack the Ripper, she's solving Jack the Ripper. Like it being a I mean, little girl demon be like that. I feel like. There are fiction does this with stories that are unsolved. Fiction, it's a common thing to like step in, where, um, and rewrite these real things that happened, but rewrite the things behind them. Um, obviously, there's this with Jack the Ripper. Um, it's been done several times with Jack the Ripper. Um, we have even more recent examples, the Dark Pictures anthologies, um, with the Murder Castle one, which the name, the the Devil in Me rewrites, you know, H.H. Holmes in that story. And we have, um, Black Butler kind of rewrites the Titanic (laughs) in one of its, um episodes it's just a thing that fiction does and i understand maybe, why that can make some people uneasy but maybe yeah i maybe i'm not explaining it well i don't think it's actually the fact that she's solving it to me it kind of feels like we're meant to empathize with this little girl demon because she just wants a mother and someone to play with and i'm like i don't i don't know i don't really like that i mean 
I think it's interesting because these situations are not black and white. You know, like, obviously, murder is wrong. But, like, you know, there are situations that are also wrong surrounding it. You know? And that's kind of... It's very human for things to be multifaceted. And for things to have other like, reasons. And I will say that, like, macabre is just, like, a thing, too. Especially, like, in mm -hmm. London, this story specifically, like... And, and at the time, people were fascinated by this. And it's, like, it's gross and it's gruesome and grisly. But, like, people were, like, clambering down the street to go see the latest murder victim. Yeah, and people are... I think it's just it's a thing, you know? And it's been a thing forever. Like, particularly in this yeah, era, right. I read a book about it. Um, it's how the Victorians invented murder or something like that. I'll find the book and I'll put it in, like, the links or whatnot. Or we'll post it. There's a picture of it on our Instagram somewhere. Because it was on my reads with outlander but humans just do that <laughs> humans are fascinated by the macabre and fascinated by the taboo and particularly in this era when you're talking about like there's no tv there's no like you know the entertainment was who's on the hanging block today you know who died and it's it's macabre yes to some people is it wrong maybe but it's it's this interesting facet of humanity. You know? I don't know. I just don't necessarily like that it was just this little girl who just wanted a mom and it's just like... It's a dark story. And, you know, surprisingly yeah. um, morally gray for what we're used to reading in this series. I agree. But I will well, say... I mean... Oh, go ahead, Jenny. I think I'm I want I'm not sure if like the argument is like does it feel so like so I'm thinking about this one and then like the last story we like one of the other ones we did about like Paris you know with the, oh, that's the right. King we also rewrote the French Revolution like you know we also rewrote French Revolution like does it the thing is as a as a person as a layperson who doesn't know a lot a lot of details about either of these things I know the basic details it doesn't feel super out of the realm. But, like, maybe if if somebody who knows the history is reading this and is just like, eh, feels pretty rushed, that's one thing, I think. I mean, the argument yeah. to be, I guess the argument to be made is, like, does it feel like it's just like a meh, half-thrown-together, half-researched type of thing? Or does it feel like, oh, you know, maybe this would be possible in a, in a I, world where, like, magic also happens. Black Mother also rewrote Jack the Ripper. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it kind I'm of had fine. a similar take to this, actually. With, yeah. I'm fine with... Yeah. It being rewritten for it to be a demon or whatever, that's fine. It's the fact that I feel like we're meant to empathize or whatever with this little girl who just wants a family and and a mother and whatever. And I'm like, I don't empathize with her. She. I mean, I think that's an interesting take on yeah. looking at the victims of Jack the Ripper because Jack the Ripper took you know these desperate prostitutes, women, and then particular fascination with their childbearing organs, like removing their uteruses. I think that that's an interesting take. That it's, you know, a demon, a demon taking the form of this child who wants a mother and is, like, um, longing for that and is, like, removing that as, like, a sort of vengeance, you know? And I think it's an interesting take. Yeah, I think it's an interesting take, and I wouldn't necessarily think that, like, he also, I mean, I think that you can, if you're, you're making the argument of, like, empathy, like, maybe, the, maybe there is some, but, like, you know, Will kills her in the end anyways, like, he doesn't mm -hmm. hesitate. 
He's still just like, I'm going to stab her I know. not looking. I won't like, hesitate, bitch. It's, I'm not. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know how else to explain it. And we're going to disagree. You know, we do. We talk about, you know, oh, yeah. we're disagreeing yeah, exactly. and that's fine. It's just, I don't know. I think that there's some degree of empathy. I mean, the thing is, being able to understand how and why something happens does not make something not wrong. Right. You know, those I are get, two entirely just, different situations. This is just the way I'm interpreting it. And that's all I can say about it. Absolutely. Like, uh, we talk about... Yeah. Uh, I'm going to talk about Baldur's Gate 3. <laughs> um, oh, no. Because this, is, <laughs> because this is a... Uh, Every video game reference is going to be Ali and then... yeah, It's fine. We're making a lot about their references. Okay, but, but it's got a really fantastic about? example about it. Because I'm going to... So we're talking about being able to empathize with something does not mean it is not wrong. And one of the ways that we see this appear in, you know, daily life is the cycle of abuse, right? And so I'm going to use the example of Astarian to kind of give this uh, thing. So Astarian is a character in Baldur's Gate 3. Um, he is a vampire who has been abused by his master, who has been used as this, like, sexual lore to bring back, you know, what he believes to be food for his uh, master. And he builds a lot of resentments for this. Um, to resolve his storyline, you can go one of two ways. Um, to resolve his storyline, you can either go for um, he remains this vampire spawn and he remains as he is. And, you know, ultimately he grows and he breaks the cycle of abuse. You can also choose to make him the vampire ascendant, where in this storyline he basically becomes the abuser. You know? So it's like there's empathy for what has happened in, in the ascendant storyline where he has basically become a reincarnation of his master. There's empathy for what happened to make him this way, but that does not make the behavior right. Does that make sense? So you can still condemn the actions while understanding and having empathy for what happened. And I think that in a way, that is what we're being shown here. There's empathy for this little girl in the demon who just wanted a mother, but that still doesn't... Um, the actions are still condemned. Like, it doesn't make I don't the know. actions right. I get what you're saying. I, I don't know. It's morally great storytelling, and it's not everybody's cup of tea. And, like, you don't have to yeah. like it, but... Listen, the thing that I don't love, the thing that I have issues with, is all the dudes, the dudes ex everywhere, you know? Deus ex <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Deus ex everything, everywhere. Jesse, be, Jessamine being a ghost com conveniently solves this problem. Okay, of, I thought like, that was really interesting. And though. then, like, the girl and the, like, yeah. But I love seeing Jesse. I thought, so I wish that this was longer because I really like the concept of this. I, I don't want this to happen within the context of, because the greater context is Tessa is speaking to this academy class and telling this story. Mm -hmm. I want the, to see this story happen, but be bigger, you know, because I think that Jesse stepping in and be like offering to play with the child is interesting. Because I think that's interesting so given Jesse's character. But like But it's it's explained but yeah. away and, and it's like, like how it's, we end from yeah, see, how we ended the infernal devices to get to here. I'm like I'm I so don't know mad, because you know <laughs> I think it's character I think it's weirdly character growth for Jesse because we you know, her dollhouse is so important to her, she doesn't want anyone else to touch it. She doesn't want anyone else to play with it. And she's kind of allowing and this now, for to save the children and it's like, she mentions, yeah. I don't, what is it exactly? She mentions at the end when Will is talking to her ghost that she's going to protect their children or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's what she's doing. 
Uh, yeah, I she, agree that it's it's interesting to see this, but I just I still don't think it makes perfect. She, I, don't, I don't know if it really makes. It's sense. It's like kind me. of a throwaway, but at least maybe I think it is a throwaway. That like they talk about James trying to run out full force into the outside of the institute, and Jesse's like, "No, no, darling, you're not going to do that." Well, you think about it, mm-hmm. it's it's this weird twisted way of Jesse getting what she wants. Because what did Jesse want? Jesse yeah. wanted this mundane. She wanted life, to be a mother, to be a mother, family. She wanted a family, and she's kind of yeah. So it's this kind of warped way of Jesse falling into this role for a moment, you know? Yeah. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I wish the story were longer because I feel like there's interesting threads, but they're not as well developed as I would like them to be. You know? Yeah, I like seeing the glimpses, yeah. but I agree. I think I would have liked more glimpses into them as you know new parents and stuff like that exactly also i did have one oh go ahead i think that we get to the whole well it's a demon who wants a mother i feel like we get to that conclusion really really quickly Mm -hmm. i feel like that we should have i feel like it could have been more impactful and more interesting with more development there one question i did have was where is sophie and gideon during all of this Uh... (laughs) yeah i mean they don't all live together. They do not, no. So, right. And I didn't even know, and in my impression, I got the impression that Cecily and Gabriel were, like, visiting more than, like, they, they lived at the Institute. Mm-hmm. Maybe. They might live at the Institute. I think, but I think they lived I got the closer impression they to were the Institute. Like, I think that's what yeah. the vibe is. Maybe it was just, I was under the impression yeah, that they so were all too. still living there. Mm-mm. I don't think so, no. It's okay. just Will yeah. and Tessa. Yeah. And maybe I just found it right. odd that, like, Cecily and Gabriel are here and involved but sophie and gideon aren't i was just like why are we excluding them and i think that's what they don't need to be because obviously this is a very short story Mm -hmm. like the story obviously need to be included but even just like a throwaway line of like what they were they are yeah they have to have kids at this point they do so i have two girls they do Anyway. Maybe the boys yeah. around yet. I don't know. I don't know. I do also I think remember. it's interesting that Cecily and Gabriel had kids before Will and Tessa. Yeah. A little bit, yeah. 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 Life happens that way sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Something that yeah. Anna, Anna being causing problems and running around the Institute all the time. Anna being a problem. Yeah, that yeah. That's important. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'm Anna. No. Causing problems. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> It was a no. joke. I haven't even <laughs> really met her, so definitely not. But but Anna is Anna's great. Anna's great. We love Anna. Anna's fantastic. I love all of our yeah. children. Jane, the last James hours. is I'm precious. I'm so fucking excited, man. Spoon. Huh? Yeah. And then so James is so precious with his spoon. And then yeah, and that's all he cares about his spoon. And then Lucy is still a baby, baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's cool. But like, oh. Speaking, yeah, things that, things that I'm just like, okay. So my my take is just like, just because you acknowledge that you've broken your rules doesn't mean doesn't doesn't like fix it, you know? With with Jemariah, if you will, (laughs) as Elias said, Jemariah just being here all the time, all the time. All the time. He's just here all the time. Every time that Will stubs his toe, he's like, oh, brother Zechariah. Oh. Yeah. 
Brother Zachary is here. All the time. What if there's danger? Ugh. All right. And they're just hanging out and like yeah, Jem's putting his yeah, parchment Shadowhunter or Silent Brother robes over Will as he's cast out. Who is, the is it? Is it? Is it Gabriel? That's like you find an excuse for Jem to always be around. It is Gabriel. He does. Yeah. Your toes. Gabriel calling him out and he shit. Does. That's and that's what I'm saying. I don't. I'm just like just because you're self-aware as an author, so you could have your other character call out the bullshit that you pulled. That doesn't make it right. Exactly. Trust. <laughs> uh, uh, Jem has had tracking spells on them since they were born. Oh fuck right off. <laughs> Let Jem, <laughs> let Jem live his new life as a silent brother. No! And have, yeah. And no. I love him, but he yeah, should exactly. be dead! Or whatever. Yeah. But, like, if this is, my point well, is... Yeah, if, I agree. I know what you're saying, Melody. Like, if, if he's supposed to be a silent brother, there's let him be a silent brother. This is not a silent brother, what he's doing. And, like, in a situation like this, where they're, like, thinking that they may need him for healing ability or whatever, I don't know. In, like, a dire situation, yeah. I can see them calling on Jem. But, like... Silent Brothers don't heal mundanes. It wasn't about healing mundanes, though. It was. But... Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was about healing them. I don't think so, because they're like, if we could save one of these girls. Well, oh. it may have been in relation to being. But also, but... why would they need a Silent Brother to heal them? Like, isn't that what an Arasi's for? It, it's a very loose yeah, excuse that's... to have Jem there. Yeah, it, exactly. Yeah, it is a very loose excuse. Jem Uncle Jemariah. Jemariah. Uncle Jemariah. Yeah. Exactly. And then Tess is out here like holding his hand sometimes still. I know, right? Like, bruh. And it was like Gabriel is the, seems to be on the only shoulder. one who doesn't understand why Jem is still so important to the two of them. And it's like, yeah. Well, he has the outside perspective. Yeah, yeah, that perspective of like, like, because he, he like, he knows of them, but he it's doesn't know, know them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he, he. It's what you just said, Ali. Uh, yeah. Or was it Ginny? Whoever, I don't know. You had said it two cents ago, and I don't know who it was. I'm sorry. But of uh, the author being self-aware doesn't make it right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry. It's, it's, <sighs> it's frustrating. Just like... It's frustrating. I love Jem so much. But just And like, how Let long him does it have take his to own become li- like a full Southern brother? Like, this process Let is so damn quick. Let him be his own person outside <laughs> of being Will and Tessa's... Basically, they're like... Their third wheel in their relationship. <laughs> this is my boyfriend, Will, and this is Will's boyfriend, Jemariah. <laughs> husband now. Oh, my husband, Will. My husband, Will, and Will's boyfriend, Jemariah. And also my future mean? boyfriend, husband. And also my future <laughs> husband. But, like, we went over that last time. Baby We're daddy. Back <laughs> we did. We did, but my I was just like, it's here again, and I'm like, oh. My ex-fiance. Uh, it's just, yeah, the amount yeah. of Gabriel was like, just rampant he could, he was whole, like, whole episode. He could not understand how, like, her as her ex-fiance, and it was like, oh, God. It's a whole thing. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, Gabriel, I know. Thing. I know, buddy. Yeah, We're exactly. all with you. Anyway. Gabriel Lightworm is right. Oh, Lightworm. I did love the other nicknames that was given to Benedict Lightwood. Oh, yeah. Which Those were... Rough. Which were bad news, Benedict. <laughs> right. <laughs> Benedict Lightworm, which was one we had already seen previously, and Bestial Benedict. Oof. Ooh. Ooh. So I still yeah. call him Eggs Benedict in my notes because mm-hmm. that is the funniest thing ever. You're good job, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> Shenanigans. Yeah. On this podcast. Always. Shenanigans. That's what we're here for. 
We got more shenanigans next time too, right? Yes, we do have more shenanigans. So that'll be shorts interlude number two. Um, we are going to talk about <laughs> the following. <laughs> Tales from the Shadowhunter Academy, nothing but shadows. And then we have two from Ghosts of the Shadow Market, which is more Uncle Gemariah shenanigans. Um, we'll be reading <laughs> Cast Long Shadows and sobbing about it. And we will also be reading Every Exquisite Thing from that same series. And finally, The Bane Chronicles, The Midnight Air. Um, all of these are going to give us more insight into our uh, new cast that we'll be adopting when we eventually start Bane of Gold. So, so next week is going to be the day before Christmas Eve. It is, um, the 23rd. Obviously, we'd love to have you here, but, you know, go be with your families if you're doing Christmas stuff. Listen, the podcast will drop on Christmas Day on Spotify and Apple Music. Listen to it as you're unwrapping your presents on Christmas mm-hmm. morning. That is our gift to your family. I will certainly maybe be able to do it. I don't have, I have anything less. to do. No, I'm working. I don't think I'm working there are weird Christmas. incest subplots in these four <laughs> that you'll have to explain to your family. I'm working Christmas Eve and Christmas. Ugh, that's gross. I'm sorry. Uh, sad. Yeah. Not like I have anything else to do. That's true. That's true. And yeah. then after that, uh, um, I believe in the new year, we'll be starting Chain of Gold. Yep. I know. Year. Exciting. But first, more shorts. More shorts. And yeah, um, I think these shorts, I'm assuming all these shorts were out before, yes. right? Before the last hours. Yeah, all these were out before the last Which hour. is interesting because I definitely didn't read, like, I, I didn't really read any of the shorts. Um, I didn't either. So yeah, I would definitely went into the last hours without some of these context things, which is a different experience too. I'll be yeah. going in with the context because I haven't even read last hours. That's true. Yeah, exactly. Fun stuff. But, but we'll see you still, then, the 23rd, we with more shorts. More shorts. Short shorts. Bye. See you in short shorts. Bye. <laughs> see you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>